Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y.com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, I like classic clothing that never goes out of style, and that's why I suggest you check out Quince, an online clothing store that focuses on timeless essentials at great prices. I recently bought a Mongolian cashmere sweater for under $100. It's a great sweater and a great deal. Now that warm weather is upon us, Quince has all the seasonal must-haves, like 100% European linen shirts from 30 bucks, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part? All Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands by partnering directly with top factories. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. Upgrade your wardrobe. Go to quince.com milkstreet for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash Milk Street to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash Milk Street. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Today, it's my interview with Ukrainian chef, author, and activist Olia Hercules. She shares recipes and stories from her home and how she's coping after almost one year of war. 
to be completely honest with you, when the war started, I was completely dilapidated for about three months. I couldn't eat and I couldn't cook. In fact, I was really worried that I've lost that power, that resource that I had of something that could cure my mental state in some way. Um, but then when my parents left Ukraine and they were safe, I actually went to meet them in Italy and I cooked for them. And, um, and I regained that power, I regained that ability to cook. We'll hear from Olya later in the show. First, we're heading to the Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness in northern Minnesota, where Dorothy Moulter sold hundreds of bottles of root beer every day to summer tourists from the 1950s until her death in 1986. Jess Edberg, executive director of the Dorothy Moulter Museum in Ely, Minnesota, is here to help tell her story. Jess, welcome to Milk Street. Well, hi, Chris. Nice to be here. So let's start with who was Dorothy Moulter? Who was Dorothy? Dorothy... Uh, Here in Ely, she's a local icon, but she was the last non-Indigenous resident of the Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness and known as the Root Beer Lady. What's that Boundary Area Wilderness? How big is it? Where is it? Et cetera. So the Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness is in northeastern Minnesota, a few million acres. And so um, the rules about traveling in the wilderness are Basically, the, the Cliff Notes version is it's a non-motorized wilderness. And because of the glacial activity here thousands of years ago, there's a ton of lakes. And so the main mode of transportation is by canoe. So in 1930, Dorothy first visits a resort in the Boundary Waters. This is on a fishing trip. And then she moves to the resort year-round to work as a live-in nurse and resort manager. So then she becomes really well-known and beloved among the visitors. And she lives there for 30 years, uh, and then comes some trouble. All of a sudden, no one's supposed to be living in the Boundary Waters. There's not supposed to be a resort in this wilderness area. But she managed to get special dispensation, right? Yes. She, having been there and being the sole owner-proprietor since 48, she had built up this very positive reputation among the community here as well as her resort guests. And when the Wilderness Act passed in 1964, she was one of the last permanent residents and then was told, hey, your property is going to be condemned and you can't live here anymore. Um, A lot of these supporters and, and some of them in high places came out and showed their support. So speaking to government officials, writing editorials in fairly large newspapers. And so as a result, she was able to negotiate with the Forest Service and ultimately get permission to stay there. It was temporary at first, but then it was um, extended to a lifetime tenancy in the 70s. So what's the the mythology around her? What is it about her that particularly strikes a chord in that part of the state? Part of the mythology, I guess, around Dorothy is at the time where she took over in the 40s, there were some really kind of rigid gender roles, and she really went against that grain. And so she chose not to be married and to operate this business 15 miles from the nearest road on her own, and she stuck 
you know, to her guns. She wanted to stay there. She wasn't interested in moving to town and having running water, electricity. She really liked her lifestyle. And then, of course, you add her making homemade root beer in a wilderness setting. It was this novelty that people didn't expect when they were going up into the Boundary Waters to see a a woman on an island in the middle of a wilderness and then, hey, would you like an ice-cold root beer? She wasn't making the root beer from scratch, right? I mean, she she had root beer syrup or mm-hmm. it, it wasn't she wasn't going back to make the authentic root beer, right? Correct. She just wanted to have some nice beverage for her resort guests. And root beer is a very North American, South American traditional beverage that had been made for hundreds of years in homes across, you know, the continent. And so she found some easy recipes that took into account the supplies that she had available to her in the town of Ely. So she starts with a syrup or extract, water, sugar, and then I guess it has to ferment in the bottle for a while. Is that right? Yes. I think some people loved it, and but some people didn't, right? Yeah. For folks that had been on a Boundary Waters trip, had been out in the wilderness for five, seven, 14 days, drinking lake water, possibly using iodine to purify it, stopping at Dorothy's on the way out, the root beer was more of an experience. And so the taste of it was influenced kind of by the anticipation of having a cold beverage during a hot summer in the wilderness. You know, it's it's kind of this holistic experience for the folks that generally had a positive view of the root beer, where folks that, you know, maybe were root beer aficionados or made their own root beer or were just up there to visit Dorothy briefly, it maybe didn't taste as good. You know, back in the 70s, there was this whole back to the earth movement, right? And, and now we're sort of in a strange period where there's still a little bit of that. The idea of a simple life, I think, is appealing. Could you just talk about what you think people find appealing about her today? Sure. I find that there tends to be kind of two forks on that road of of what people are attracted to about Dorothy and her life and her personality. And one is that female empowerment When we look at her life and the time that she lived and the choices she made, it's an inspirational story that a lot of folks, especially young women, can look to for kind of guidance or inspiration. And the the other road that I found a lot of people feeling inspired by or identifying with is that return to a simple life and just, you know, living off the land and That's one of the common themes with visitors to the museum is, you know, I would have loved to live like Dorothy, but I don't know that I could do it. (laughs) It's the idea, the the romanticized idea of having that life that is attractive to people. Well, I I always like, though, people, you know, go like, oh, I wish I could live her life. Well, uh uh-huh. It's like Thoreau, you know, like he could walk into Concord from Walden Pond and have dinner with his mother. (laughs) But but to really do this the way she did it is... (laughs) Anybody who's grown up in modern America would – very few people could actually do it. Right? You have to be a very special kind of person to do that. You do, and you have to be self-motivated, and you have to understand that it's a lot of physical labor. 
You know, you are daily hauling water, daily chopping wood. And in Dorothy's situation, you're daily having visitors come, many of whom you don't know, entering your personal space and coming to see you to get a root beer and meet this, you know, mystery of the Boundary Waters. Yeah, I. that's an interesting part of the story because someone said, you know, how do you live such a lonely life? And the fact of the matter is she met thousands of people a year who show up. Mm-hmm. How does she deal with 100 people showing up a day or whatever the number was? That would be hard, right? You always had to be on. You always had to sort of entertain. Mm-hmm. How, how did that fit into the her life? Well, one of the things she did is she put a sign out that said, you know, you can stay for a maximum of 20 minutes. <laughs> that helped with some of the people. I like that. Well, she probably put up sign, you know, Dorothy not here today. (laughs) Yeah, there were times, you know, Dorothy's great nephew, um, Dan, comes up and he said there were times where they would just, you know, leave the cooler full of root beer and they'd go exploring around Knife Lake for a while. And I think the opportunity and knowing that Dorothy could do that balanced out some of that responsibility of being the root beer lady is that she had this beautiful wilderness all around her and she could go at any time and enjoy it herself. Jess, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. It's a great story. Thank you. And likewise, Chris, thanks for having me. It's wonderful chatting with you. That was Jess Edberg, executive director of the Dorothy Moulter Museum in Ely, Minnesota. Now it's time to answer your cooking questions with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. Sarah is, of course, the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television, also author of Home Cooking 101. So you lived in New York a long time. You grew up in New York. I did. So I know back in the day when I was living here in the 70s, I spent a lot of time going to inexpensive, you know, cheap eats, right, like they were discussed in New York Magazine. Is that something you still do? Have you found a lot of really great inexpensive places here? There's fewer and fewer and fewer, you know, particularly after the pandemic, because so many of the mom and pop places shut down. Mm-hmm. But it's funny you should bring that up. There was a column in it was New York Magazine called the Underground Gourmet. Oh, yeah, I remember that. And that is the only place we would eat right. because it was the only place that was affordable. And that was fantastic. Yeah. There are some places in Queens. Um, Right. Well, that for sure. And yeah. also a Little India, which is in um, the 20s on Lexington. There are some Indian hmm. restaurants that are still affordable. And so, yes, I've eaten at some of those. But they're harder to find. The city is, unfortunately, um, it's getting more and more expensive. There's a little place over Ninth Avenue in the 40s that does ramen. Mm. It's definitely a hole in the wall. It's not one of these cool, super cool modern places. It's right. just a typical place. I was there a few months ago, and the gyoza was better than what I had in Tokyo. <laughs> oh, my God. You don't remember the name of it, Of course though. not. And I'm <laughs> just a big tease. And the ramen was also great. But, you know, just a couple of people, tiny little kitchen. That's my favorite place. Yeah. No, I you agree know, with you. It was you. 20 bucks for dinner, and yeah. it was outstanding. Those so. little tiny places. Okay. Let's take a call. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Maureen from Iowa. Hi, Maureen. How can we help you today? So we are fortunate enough to get locally raised beef each year, and our butcher gives us soup bones. So last spring, I ended up blanching them and then roasting them in the oven and put them in a roaster for a couple days and then added some roasted vegetables later on, maybe with 12 hours left. So I was wondering if that, A, is the best way to 
make beef broth from the soup bones, but B, we ended up with a lot of meat left over. And I wasn't sure if there was anything that we could do with that meat since it had already set in the the liquid for so long, if it would have any flavor left. Can I just clarify? First of all, so you blanched them, meaning you boiled them and then, you know, took them out of the liquid, right? Yes. Okay. And then you said you roasted them. I roasted them in the oven maybe 20, 30 minutes and then put them in liquid, like filled a roaster with liquid and put all the soup bones in it. Okay. And were the soup bones always covered with the liquid? Yes. Okay. And you cooked that forever. You're making bone broth, sort of. Right. Yep. Okay. Well, I mean, how flavorful was the broth? I'm sure it was very flavorful, right? Yes, it was very good. Okay, but you don't want to waste the meat that was on the bones, so there must have been a fair amount of meat on the bones. Yes. Did you even try tasting the meat? I didn't. Well, I understand, you know, after cooking it for a couple of days that it certainly will not have a lot of texture, but I do believe that it will have some flavor because it's been in that broth all that time. Okay. I'm a big fan of not wasting food. So I would freeze it in small portions and then add it to recipes, you know, shredded with some seasoning, you know, highly seasoned, you know, in places where you would have shredded meat, like parts of a stuffing or in a burrito, in a pepper with rice. You could stuff raviolis with it, a little bit of cheese in there, too. But uh, I think the important thing, you know, in tacos, quesadillas, is to taste it and um, then season it. Chris, what do you think? Okay. I was in <laughs> Now Sarah's going to get mad at me. I was in Paris recently. Uh, yeah, I'm really mad at you. <laughs> now she's mad at me. But I stopped at a place called Nonette, which is a Vietnamese and it has kind of street food and they do banh mi sandwiches and some donuts and other things. But I was just thinking like if you took this meat, threw it in a saute pan, added a little soy sauce, fish sauce, oyster sauce, flavor, toasted sesame oil, whatever you wanted and just heated it up, warmed up a baguette, split it in half, Use that as the meat. Quick pickles, some carrots and onions takes about 15 minutes and some vinegar. You could put mayonnaise on it or you could put any kind of sauce you wanted on it after that. Make a sandwich. I know in parts of Africa, they also use ground beef to make sort of a beef sandwich that's similar to a banh mi. But that's what I would do with it because it doesn't matter how flavorful the meat is because you're going to add a lot of flavor to the meat in a pan. Plus, you have everything else that goes in. So that would be my way to do it, or, you know, tacos or burritos or anything where there are other flavors. Right. I think probably it will actually have some flavor because it's been cooking in that yummy broth all that time. Great. In terms of making the broth, is that whole process necessary? Is that what you would recommend or the way that you would recommend to do a beef bone broth? I don't think you need to cook bones for days. I don't know if it's well, necessary. Well, a, a stock is essentially bones, usually roasted, that are cooked in water, you know, simmered broth usually has some meat with it. Yeah. So we agree the, on that. The, the reason people use bones was they were frugal and they had a pot of water on the back of the stove all day. But you can make great stock with meat, you know, in a fraction of the time. For chicken stock, for example, you can take three pounds of chicken wings, eight cups of water, a couple of bay leaves, a little salt, throw in a pressure cooker, instant pot for an hour under high, let it cool off for 20 minutes, open it, and you have 12 cups of phenomenal broth that'll be better than a stock made with just bones. So She did use bones with meat on it. Well, how long would you cook a beef broth? Would you cook it for a couple of days? No, I cook it 
five or six hours. Or so you see, we agree. Oh, no. Yes. Okay. The sh- it's this rare. Is, this is the last episode of Milk Street. We're, uh, we're agreeing. Maureen, you brought us together. <laughs> Thank you so much. But, but I mean, the, the point is you have the bones. So, yeah, your technique's fine. I just wouldn't cook it quite as long, but I think I, it's I fine. I don't think it's necessary. Yeah. But, yeah. but good for you. Yeah. yeah. Wonderful. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure yeah, to thanks. speak with you both. Same here, Maureen. Take care. This is Milk Street Radio. If you need help with dinner or even dessert, give us a ring at 855-426-9843. That's 855-426-9843. Or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Rebecca from Arlington, Massachusetts. How can we help you? So I recently found myself with a surplus of potatoes, and I decided to make gnocchi. Hmm. I made a triple batch. And I used a third of it that night and then froze the remaining two-thirds in two portions. I froze it before boiling it as well. And the ones that I cooked that night were great. But when I tried to boil one of the frozen portions later, it just disintegrated into, like, soggy mashed potatoes. Um, And I was wondering what I might have done wrong. Did I freeze them incorrectly or defrost them incorrectly? Or uh, is there something I could add to the gnocchi themselves to make them freeze better? Did you defrost them before cooking them? I did not. That's good. Did you have a fairly small batch of gnocchi going into the water at a time so you didn't overcrowd um, it? I think I just dumped the whole bag in. It was about a pound. That might be a problem in that obviously they're frozen, right? So they're going to reduce the temperature of the water pretty quickly. And if you did that, they might disintegrate instead of just cooking up. This is not my idea, but I read somewhere if you let the gnocchi before you freeze them, sit out at room temperature for an hour or two. They'll develop a little bit of a skin. They'll dehydrate, dry out on the outside. And that helps when you freeze them. It gives them, you know, sort of more of a firm exterior. uh, So they won't Mm -hmm. tend to become mealy when you cook them. And that's something you might want to try. I would say cook them in batches and then let them sit for a couple hours when you make them before you freeze them. And that might help. I agree with Chris, um, because when you dumped that whole pound into the boiling water, it brought down the temperature immediately, which means that Mm -hmm. they fell apart before they set up. When I get, like, frozen gnocchi from the supermarket, though, I generally just dump the whole thing in, and it doesn't. They don't turn into mush. Yes, but they probably have something in them. Yeah, some sort of additive. Yeah. Yeah. They might have potato starch added or something else. Yeah. But meanwhile, very impressive that you made your own gnocchi. That's a labor of love. Yeah, no, they were they were delicious. You know, we just, at Milk Street, we actually made mm-hmm. gnocchi with potato flakes. The Ex- flavor's not as good, yeah. but the texture's not bad. For a quick, easy, simple gnocchi, it does yeah, work. it works. I think we've exhausted everything we know about freezing and reheating mm-hmm. gnocchi. Yes. I still have one batch of gnocchi left. I can give it a try with that last batch that's still frozen and see if these ones cook up better. All good. Right. Take care. Thank yes. you. Thanks, Rebecca. Bye. Thank you very much. Bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? My name is Susan. Where are you calling from? I'm calling from uh, Wynwood, Pennsylvania. How can we help you today? A few weeks ago, our daughter and son-in-law had a baby shower. They've since had the baby, a, a beautiful baby boy. Mazel tov. <laughs> Thank you. And I baked some blueberry lemon tarts, which I've done before. But I was a bit tired, and this recipe, it's from the Silver Palette. It requires you to squeeze a lot of lemons, and it's very sour. It's a cup of lemon juice and five tablespoons of grated lemon zest, so very sour, but you also put in sugar. 
so I had made the crust and I put the filling in and then I realized I hadn't put in the sugars. Oh dear. <laughs> and remember, it's terribly sour. And so I thought, what do I do? Do I just scrap the whole thing after I'd done all this work? Um, what you're supposed to do when the pie is done, you're supposed to also sprinkle powdered sugar on top. So I thought, well, that'll help a little bit. So I sprinkled more than you know I think the recipe called for. And then when we served it, I just said, let's get a gallon of vanilla ice cream in. <laughs> and that seemed, <laughs> that seemed to do the trick. But I was wondering if there is a way to remedy something like this. First of all, I, I applaud you for just carrying on. Did you tell anybody you made this mistake? Just a few select people. And the other people, we just gave them the ice cream and the pie. <laughs> and did they eat it? Yes, they did. Well, there you go. So that's rule number one in Julia Child's book, Never Apologize, Never Explain. But I think what you did was 100% correct because confectioner's sugar, uh, when it hits something wet, melts pretty quickly. And mm -hmm. so it got absorbed. And obviously it, it did. did the trick mm -hmm. along with the ice cream. So you see, you just intuitively knew what to do. So mm -hmm. you go. That's amazing. Right. I didn't know how much, though, as far as the sugar. I thought, you know, I mean, I knew how much the recipe called for, but I was just sprinkling it on, you know. Willy-nilly. Well, you know, yeah. you just made up your own thing, which is fine. And also you could have, of course, there was blueberries that were then going to be put on top of the lemon part, right? Yeah, after the filling is in, then you put Do the, the blueberries, blueberries on top. So you did all the confectioner right. sugar stuff before you put the blueberries on. No, actually, I did put the confectioner sugar on top of the blueberries. Well, it still worked. All I was going to say is you could stick a yeah. spoon in and take a bite and then put a couple more blueberries on top of where you took the bite, and that way you'd know where you were right. at. But anyway, exactly. Chris, any thoughts about this? I do have a question about timing. When exactly in this process did you remember you did not add the sugar? I think when it was in the oven. Oh. Uh, well, if it was the, before um, it was in I the oven, it. you could have just poured the filling out and added the sugar. Oh, uh, right, right. No, it was already baking in the tart. I have two suggestions. You could have put the confectioner's sugar in two or three times while it's baking, and then right. every little addition would melt, and that would be fine. The other solution is just bake it and then make a sugar syrup separately. You could flavor it with alcohol. Right. You could flavor it with orange blossom water, whatever you want, or some kind of flavored oil or extract and then pour that concentrated sugar syrup, drizzle it over the top of the tart when it was cool. And uh, that also would have yeah. worked, I think, pretty well. Yeah. And the last thing you right, should have right. done is to just say, this is a new recipe from Alice Waters. You know, she likes everything natural <laughs> and not too sweet. <laughs> and then you say Alice Waters and everybody goes like, oh, okay, this is great. Yeah. <laughs> or or Yotamoto Lenghi's new uh, blueberry lemon custard right. tart. I think uh -huh. the sugar, of all the things, a sugar syrup would have been my solution to it. I hadn't thought of that. Well, the ice cream's not a bad, I mean, in a pinch, that was pretty no, smart. No, because the dairy will yeah, also yeah. take down all that acid yeah. so in that, the lemon. That was, that was a good idea, Yeah, too. no, I think you, I actually just think you did a great job. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Don't flinch. Yeah, okay. Thank you. I was wondering what the professionals would say. To... Never confess in the kitchen. Yeah, never ever. apologize, yeah. never explain. Nope. Okay. Thanks. Good advice. Okay, okay Susan. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye now. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Coming up, Olya Hercules shares stories and recipes from Ukraine. That's after the break.
I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. (laughs) There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White. And here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an Allagash White. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash White. (laughs) Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook. I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. (laughs) And I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are and I think that makes it very food friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavors of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it you're reminded like oh wow Yeah, that's really good.
This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Most Your Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Right now, I'm joined by Ukrainian chef, author, and activist Olia Hercules. She recently published her fourth book, Home Food, 100 Recipes to Comfort and Connect. Just to note, we recorded this interview in November 2022. Olia, welcome back to Milk Street. Thank you so much, Chris, for having me again. Uh, last time we spoke, Ukraine was not at war. <laughs> Things were quite different. Um, so let's just start with you and your family. I guess your brother Sasha is now part of the defense unit fighting. Do you hear from him a lot? or? Yeah, I hear from my brother every every single day. Yeah, he joined the territorial army on the second day of the war, mm. and he was actively fighting during the defense of Kiev. And luckily now he's um, he's still in Kiev and... And he's actually working in, in an office, so he's still working for the army, but he's doing kind of like logistics and other okay. things. So it's a little bit less intense than in the very beginning. You also wrote about your parents. That Are they still in the Kyrgyzstan region where they were, or have they moved? No, no. I insisted in April that they leave, and they, uh, yeah, they broke through kind of 19 checkpoints uh, out of the Kherson region, and... Um, and my mom is now in Berlin with my cousins, uh, but my dad couldn't actually manage to live abroad, so he went back to Ukraine. So now he's in a area that's just above our home region in Mykolaiv with his sister and my other cousin. You know, it was so interesting what he said, um, or your parents said, why should we leave our home? This is our home, our animals, our trees. We haven't done anything wrong. We're not going anywhere. It's I think people often ask, you know, if you're looking back in history at war and why some people have a hard time leaving, and it's just for that reason, right? It's it's your home, and it must be very difficult to leave. Yeah, of course, and uh, obviously stuff was happening in the East, but where we were, it's been at peace. So it's a very strange and horrific situation, really. Yeah, tell us a little bit. I mean, you, you mentioned uh, Ukraine and the geography and you know, what parts it wore and, and, and how the food's very different in different places. Could you just sketch that out for us? Sure. So Ukraine is huge and, um, and it's very diverse. It's diverse in its landscapes. So up north you have mountains and forests and ingredients and food is a little bit different from, or actually quite a lot different from central and southern Ukraine. So you'd get polenta dishes and mushrooms and earthy flavors. And then when you go down south, where I'm from, it's almost Mediterranean. Mm. It's super hot from April to October. Uh, we have the biggest, juiciest watermelons, huge aubergines and peppers and massive tomatoes and loads of herbs you know so it's it varies quite a lot um and yeah in terms of the war uh ukraine has been at war since 2014 and um crimea which is just 70 kilometers away from where i grew up was annexed right. uh brazenly and the east of ukraine has been well pretty much destroyed since then and 
fighting continues there and in other parts of Ukraine, of course, as well. Do, do you and your family and other people from Ukraine have a vision of how this ends? In other words, you know, Zelensky's talking about pushing the Russians out entirely. Do, do you see a, a different end game to all of this when, when you talk to your friends and family? To us, there's no other alternative. Not after they've um, murdered so many people and raised whole cities to the ground, like Mariupol. Not after they've uh, caused my family and friends leave the area where we lived peacefully, where I grew up. You know, my parents had to give up their home. They had to give up the businesses, uh, everything. We lost everything, but we're not giving up. I just don't see an alternative. We, we, we will come back. In the 90s, you went to the Carpathian Mountains, and you, you talk about the holidays there. You know, it sounds almost like a Disney movie, or I guess it sounds fabulous. Could you just explain what the, what that's like? Sure. So I grew up in the south of Ukraine, in Kherson, uh, which, as I mentioned, you know, was a, a lot more kind of <laughs> aggressively Soviet in its sense. So traditions weren't really observed as much you know the language was uh, was lost to us um, and you know religion wasn't really allowed all over the Soviet Union but the further away from Russia you were the more you were able to preserve so in the south and east of Ukraine you know all of the kind of Christmas celebrations and all of the color and tradition and uh, that we read about in the books we didn't see that it was very kind of low-key and you know we hardly actually celebrated Christmas so in the 1990s when I was about 10 we went on the kind of a pilgrimage to western Ukraine to the Carpathian Mountains so you know we went on the train from Kiev and arrived in a kind of a fairy tale we came out of the train and it was snowy and there were mountains you know at night we heard wolves kind of howling in the forest it was it was so new and amazing mm. to us but the most amazing thing was to see how christmas was celebrated what happened was in this wooden house where we were staying there was this one big room which wasn't heated actually and they put this big table out and big you know christmas spread Holubtsi stuffed cabbages and uh, shuhi, which is this beetroot and dried mushroom uh, dish, loads of breads, loads of different kanapki, which are like little bites, and, you know, wine and horilka, which is Ukrainian vodka. And then people arrived in beautiful embroidered coats. Some of them were wearing kind of like goat masks, and they were playing cymbals <laughs> and violins. And, you know, it was almost like a mini folk opera performance it was it was incredible i've never seen anything like that and then this was repeated over and over again so for for about seven days actually people kept coming and playing music and they were fed in return and i don't know to me it just felt like an amazing sense of community which you know despite having grown up in a communist country which is supposed to be all about community you know I didn't feel that in the south of Ukraine everyone was suspicious of each other almost you know there was right. you know it, in my mom's time and uh, my grandmother was you know sp spied on by her neighbors you know what I mean there was this culture of, of, of distrust and and fear and and this was the first time that I witnessed community that was you know people living in the same place and supporting each other and having fun together as well. So that was an incredible experience that I'll never forget. 
You're listening to Milk Street Radio. My guest today is Olia Hercules. Coming up, Olia shares how she has slowly made her way back to cooking over this past year of war. Please stay with us. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability They'll have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly eBay gets it, so look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. This is Milk Street Radio. Now let's get back to my interview with Ukrainian chef, author, and activist Olia Hercules. Okay, let's talk about food. Um, th- there's so many recipes here that I, you know, I just love your cooking, as you know. But th- this collection is is particularly interesting. <laughs> One thing, just to start, a lime leaf sandwich, white bread and butter spread with lime leaves and sprinkled with lemon juice. Um, but tell me, tell me about that. Well, um, during the pandemic, I was supposed to write my fourth cookbook, which actually was supposed to be another travel book. 
I was supposed to uh, repeat my Siberian grandmother's journey. Uh, so my grandmother on my dad's side was from Siberia and she traveled in the 1950s to Uzbekistan because Siberia was an extremely difficult place to be at the time. Um, and on the way to Uzbekistan, she met my Ukrainian grandfather and they had my dad in Uzbekistan and then eventually they moved to Ukraine. So I was going to do this whole trip because I wanted to see, you know, what my grandmother went through. And uh, then because of the first lockdown, I wasn't able to do that anymore. So I was actually a little bit stuck. Uh, I, I've always thought of myself as a, a bit of an anthropologist as well as a food writer. You know, I wanted to tell other people's stories. I wanted to tell about different cultures. And um, my publisher said, well, you just have to write something from home. Uh, so I decided to just write a cookbook with a hundred recipes uh, that were quite easy to cook at home and that would be liked by everyone, you know, kind of quite an easy kind of like home food cookbook. And then we were doing loads of walking at that time <laughs> because there was, you know, nothing, nothing to do. We were stuck at home. So we walked in the street in June and I just smelled something in the air and it was extremely familiar. And I just thought, oh my gosh, it's linden trees just like in Ukraine. And I thought, how could I not notice the smell in the three years that I've been living in this area? You know, I just became so much more observant during that spring and summer. And I wondered why there were so many linden trees in my part of London. And uh, I came across Dorothy Hartley and her 1954 book, Food in England. And that's where the description of the sandwich comes with the with the linden bracts. Mm. And uh, yeah, it was just so interesting. Victorians in, in England really loved uh, linden trees. And that's the first time that I made a connection. It's all of a sudden my world in the UK, you know, my I've been living in Britain for the past 20 years. And my memories from Ukraine kind of were able to join. And I guess that's where the idea came to continue with these essays because it just felt so natural to write about these connections that I suddenly found. You also talk about tops, you know, like, you know, turnip tops, carrot tops, et cetera, kohlrabi, um, and, and make a paste out of it. So, I mean, that's one thing I don't think we go to the supermarket, uh, take the tops off and throw them away, right, most of the time. So... Uh, how would you make a paste or a pesto or whatever or a sauce out of tops? So at home, people tend to throw away tops, whether it's carrots, leaves or beetroot leaves, which I, I think is, is the highest crime because they're basically a free chart, um, uh, reddish leaves. But actually, they are delicious. And, and I, I found a um, paste called acharhal from the region of Caucasus. And that's a really beautiful one. So you get a few nuts, some oil, and traditionally they would use something like kohlrabi tops or radish tops or any any of those kind of green leaves of root vegetables. And you'd blitz it all together, add some spices, some salt. And it's just a really nice thing that um, keeps in the fridge so versatile and delicious. So yeah, I decided to include it. Uh Another recipe concept, which is marinating in yogurt. Uh, you have lamb chops marinated in yogurt and harissa. Does the marinating change the flavor or texture of the outside of the chop? You know, marinades don't tend to get deep into meat. Is, is, you know, why do you do it, I guess is my question. 
Yeah, I, I, I think for, for both of those reasons, I think it does, if, you, if you've got something like a, a lamb a cutlet or a lamb chop, I think it does get in quite deep if you leave it for about 24 hours. But it definitely does tenderize as well. In that recipe that you mentioned, I, I mix it with a little bit of a harissa paste as well, which you can find it in most supermarkets. Uh, eggplant, you know, until I discovered sort of the roasted or grilled eggplant in the Middle East, I, I never liked it much. And then I realized it's just amazing. But you, you steam it uh, and then put a soy ginger dressing on it. So steaming is your go-to way of preparing eggplant, right? Um, it is. I do love roasting it as well. But this is such an easy way of doing it. You literally just stick a whole eggplant into a steamer. Uh, you know, close the lid and leave it there for, I don't know, 25 minutes, half an hour, depending on the size of the aubergine until it's really, really soft. And it doesn't look particularly attractive, you know, it shrivels up. But then you just split the top of it and kind of open it up, revealing all of that beautiful flesh that gets cooked inside. And and you put this um, sweet, sour, slightly spicy and sesame seed Mm. dressing on top. And it's just the most beautiful thing. And it's so easy to do, especially if you're a busy parent or just a busy person, you know, you don't have much time to, you know, mess around for lunch or whatever. Yeah. Every every time I grill, I'll just throw an eggplant on it and and get it till it looks like it's, it's defeated. (laughs) it's it's like it can't take anymore um so salads one of the things i love is because most people here you know it's the same old same old uh you have a radish and pomegranate salad herb and sour cherry salad just talk about salads because i think people are not very creative about salads here uh yeah sure so you know even though my project uh and my my trip to uzbekistan or Central Asia didn't didn't happen. I was very much inspired by the dishes that my grandmother learned in Uzbekistan, and also a few cookbooks that I have um, lying around at home. So there's one called the sweet water salad, which I think is such a beautiful name for it. You slice the tomatoes quite thinly and you know how normally we don't want those kind of vegetables to you know to right. bleed to, for the juices to run out, but in this case you do. So you salt them. So all of this water from tomatoes oozes out and then you mix it with loads of uh, different herbs like uh, dill and coriander and purple basil if you have it. And um, and then you mix it up. I do add a tiny little bit of lemon or maybe vinegar or something. And then it's a really beautiful salad to use with your grilled meats, actually. And that's what how it would be traditionally used, you know, in, uh, with a kebab or something. And I, I, I love that one. Um, and another one is a herb salad, which, you know, we, we don't always think of herbs as the, the star of a salad, you know? We, we think of it as a, an addendum, you know, something that we add at the end or a garnish or something. But actually, in, um, in Caucasus and in Central Asia, herbs uh, do have that protagonist quality. Um, my dad uh, lived in Azerbaijan with his family, with his uncle and his Armenian wife for, for a year. And, um, and to him, that was one of the brightest memories is um, how herbs were were served on the table mm. as salad. So like whole bunches of coriander, purple basil, whatever, and people would just kind of like munch on them. Uh, let's talk cabbage. I, I, I was never, I guess, fan of cabbage. I had a stuffed cabbage in Paris not too long ago that was absolutely to die for, stuffed with, you know, finely minced sausage and other things. Um, 
I had another dish in the Middle East in Israel that was a charred cabbage with a scordalia, Greek scordalia sauce. You obviously cook cabbage a lot. So is is it time for cabbage? I mean, it just seems like this is one of the most overlooked ingredients in the supermarket that has just a lot of potential. It's high time for cabbage, <laughs> definitely. High time for cabbage. Yeah. <laughs> it's high time for cabbage. I, you know, when I wrote my first cookbook, Mamushka, when, when I was writing it, so many people asked me, oh, it's a book about Ukrainian food. Is it all about cabbage and potatoes and dumplings? Which I, you know, which I actually developed quite a big complex about. And I just felt like, oh, my God, I have to prove the world that Ukraine is beyond brown right. uh, food and beyond cabbage and potatoes and whatever. So I was very keen on making sure that those people that love Otolenghi food also loved Ukrainian food and saw that we also use herbs a lot and there's loads of color and, you know, seasonal fresh dishes, etc., etc. And then when I came to write Home Food, which is my fourth cookbook, I kind of calmed down about that. Uh, my complex was cured. And also I think Nigella Lawson's amazing essay about brown food really yes. helped, you know, in defense of brown right. food. <laughs> and I just thought, you know what, it's it's cabbage time. It's time to bring out all of those uh, recipes, all of those brown recipes that I was a, a little bit weirdly, you know, embarrassed about. But they're delicious. Why was I ever embarrassed, you know? Does food uh, and cooking help? I mean, that is, it gives you comfort every day, it brings your family together. What role does food and cooking play for you, given all the other things going on in your life right now? Yeah, uh, cooking has always been something that I used to kind of calm my nerves or, you know, if there was ever a stressful time in my life, uh, doing something, especially if it was something a little bit more involved, like making dumplings or bread, you know, I've always found it quite therapeutic, meditative. Um, to be completely honest with you, when the war started, I was completely dilapidated for about three months. I couldn't eat and I couldn't cook. In fact, I was really worried that I've lost that power, that I've lost that resource that I had, you know, of, of something that could cure my mental state in some way. Um, but then when my parents uh, left Ukraine and they were safe in Europe, I actually went to meet them and I, and I cooked for them uh, ahead of them arriving in, in Italy. And, um, and I regained that power. I regained that ability to cook. And slowly, slowly since then, I've been, I've been cooking again and, um, and writing again. And, and that, uh, that definitely helps to drag me out of the uh, dark space that I inhabited straight after the war. Well, it's, it's good for you, but it's also good for us because we, uh, I just love your books and I love your cooking. And it's, it's so, there are two things about I love. Uh, the, the freshness of the approach for someone who's never been to Ukraine. Uh, but also, it's very much home cooking. It's, you know, it's not restaurant cooking. Uh, there, there's a simplicity to it underneath that I really love. So um, we're glad you're still doing it. Thank you so much. Thank you for all your support over the years. You've been amazing. Olia, uh, it's been a pleasure having you. I wish you the best and uh, your brother and parents also the best and Ukraine all the best. Thank you so much. Thank you, Chris. Thank you so much, everyone.
That was Olia Hercules. Her latest book is Home Food, 100 Recipes to Comfort and Connect. You can learn more about Olia's latest projects and her activism on her Instagram page, at Olia Hercules. You know, my interview with Olia brings up a difficult question. Can one find joy in the midst of war? Olia's brother volunteered for the Territorial Army. Her parents were living in the Kyrgyzstan region before they escaped to Berlin, although her father has since returned. And Olia herself has been raising money for the war effort. Yet, during our interview, we talked about the glory of cabbage, steaming eggplant, and yogurt marinades. So, I think it's clear that even during life's worst moments, food can deliver joy. It also proposes faith in the future. There's always a next meal. I'm Christopher Kimball, and you're listening to Milk Street Radio. Now let's check in with contributor J. Kenji Lopez-Alt. Hey, Kenji, what are you uh, up to uh, this week? Uh, well, I thought we could talk a little bit about those bags of romaine lettuce. You know the bags you buy that have like three heads of romaine lettuce? Oh, yeah. You use one of them for your Caesar salad, and then you have two heads left over, and you end up like throwing them out because they wilt a week later. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wanted to talk to you about another way to use those heads of lettuce up. Okay. Which is going to sound weird if you, uh, I, I mean, I know you've been to China, but um, you blanch them until in, in boiling water and then serve them with uh, like a garlicky oyster sauce. And it's, huh. it's delicious. Well, because, you, you know, when you, go to, when you go to Asia, the concept of raw lettuce is not that common. Um, you, you know, anywhere you go in China, whether it's iceberg or romaine or other types of lettuce, you're going to find it either stir fried or cooked into a soup or something. So I find it's a, it's a really good way to use up those extra two heads of lettuce uh, because they, you know, they cook down into two heads of lettuce will cook down into like a nice side dish for four people. Um, hmm. And really, it only takes a matter of minutes. So what I do is I start with a my wok. You can also do this in a saute pan, of course. Um, but I start with a wok and I, and I uh, saute a few cloves of minced garlic in a little bit of oil. And then I add about a tablespoon each of soy sauce and oyster sauce. Uh, and then maybe a quarter cup of water or so just to loosen it up. And then, uh, you know, in a pot of boiling water, I just blanch the lettuce for a matter of seconds, drain it out, put it on a plate, and then pour that sauce over the top. Um, and it's, you know, comes together in minutes, uh, and and I find it to be delicious. And, it, you know, of course, it doesn't just work with romaine. You can also do it with iceberg. You could do it with watercress. You could do it with spinach. Um, and then, of course, there's sort of classic Chinese stir-fry vegetables like gailan and uh, bok choy and things like that as well. Could you not blanch it and just quickly stir fry it with a sauce? Oh, you absolutely could. Yeah. What I would do is I would roughly chop it, rinse it in the sink, and then not even put it in a salad spinner, but just kind of shake it dry so there's still water clinging to it. You know, and so then you saute your garlic in the wok with the oil, and then you put your greens right in there, and the water that's clinging to them will help them kind of steam through and wilt. Hmm. Um, the, the results, of course, are a little bit different when you do it that way versus the blanching and saucing. But but yeah, either way works. Yeah, I've noticed there are two or three sort of classic sauces you can make out of your pantry like that. Mm -hmm. Soy sauce, a little toasted sesame oil, some mirin. Uh, Are there other quick sauce recipes you have in your head that people can throw together? You you know, one of my favorite ways actually is just garlic and ginger. So I I cut garlic into relative, you know, not super thin slices, um, you know, maybe like an eighth of an inch or so. And then uh, ginger, I just, you know, smash a few coins of it. 
Uh, and then I saute that in, in oil. Um, and then the sauce is really nothing more than just the garlic and ginger flavor. You know, and I cook it down so the garlic is kind of a little bit, just slightly starting to brown. Um, and then I just add um, a cornstarch slurry straight to that. So mm. about a quarter cup of water with um, a couple teaspoons of cornstarch. Um, basically, you know, not enough that you get a thick, gloppy sauce, but just enough that when you add the greens to that, that garlic and ginger flavor that's come out into the oil, it turns into sort of an emulsified sort of glossy sheen that covers the vegetables. So cook your greens, don't eat them raw, and uh, a simple sauce of uh, soy sauce and oyster sauce gets the job done. Yeah, I mean, and it means no more wilted romaine lettuce in your fridge. Right, absolutely. Kenji, thank you. You're welcome. It was nice talking to you. That was Jay Kenji Lopez-Alt. He's the chief culinary consultant for Serious Eats, a food columnist for The New York Times, also author of The Walk, Recipes and Techniques. That's it for today. You can find all of our episodes on Apple Podcasts or wherever you do get your podcasts. You can learn more about Milk Street at 177milkstreet.com. There you can become a member and get full access to every recipe, access to all live stream cooking classes, and free standard shipping from the Milk Street store. You can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street, on Instagram and Twitter at 177milkstreet. We'll be back next week with more food stories and kitchen questions, and thanks as always for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with GBH. Co-founder, Melissa Baldino. Executive producer, Annie Sinsabaugh. Senior editor, Melissa Allison. Producer, Sarah Clapp. Assistant producer, Caroline Davis, with production help from Debbie Paddock. Additional editing by Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Chewbop Crew. Additional music by George Brindle Eglaw. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX.